listening to 90% Mental, Conversations with Grant Parr, Episode 123. Mental performance coach Grant Parr sits down with A.J. Edelman, Olympian and four times Israeli skeleton national champion, to discuss how he developed his mental game from the ground up that prepared him for his most important performance. A.J. shares his story of how he overcame burnout and the emotional and fiscal pressures of pursuing his Olympic dream. He explains his relationship with fear and how his mantras, for myself, for my people, for my country, and confidence through repetition kept him grounded and focused on his Olympic goals. AJ's process of greatness is one to admire and adopt when setting out to achieve your goals. What would more wins, higher productivity, or quicker recovery mean for you? NeuroPeak Pro optimizes human performance by working to promote balance within the autonomic nervous system. Used by the world's elite athletes, this training program is now available to you at home. Cutting-edge neuroscience and technology allows you to strengthen your brain remotely anytime, anywhere. Schedule your evaluation and get started with your brain training today. Visit NeuroPeak Pro and receive a 10% discount by using the promo code GRANTPAR. interested in a full body resistance training system to achieve your athletic and fitness goals, the mass suit from Juke Performance is your answer. The mass suit is a full body resistance training suit that you wear during your exercising or sport specific training to enhance your speed, strength, power, agility, and endurance. You are fully mobile and it's great for plyometric and high intensity training. It engages all muscle groups simultaneously and increases to a 50% caloric burn. Check out the mass suit at jukeperformance.com and other fitness-related products and make sure to use the promo code GRANTPAR, one word, G-R-A-N-T-P-A-R-R, for your 10% discount. Hey, AJ, how are you? Great. Thanks for having me on, Grant. Awesome, man. Well, I'm Really excited to have you on my show. I always get really excited when I have Olympians on my show, and basically that's what we're going to be talking about today is is understanding your mindset as an Olympian, what it took for you to to reach this elite level, and then understand some other things that you're doing with your platform as an athlete. So I'm really excited to have you on my show today. Very excited to be here. Awesome. So let's get into it. Um, I always start off my show about being mentally tough or mental toughness. And I can only imagine the things that you've had to go through out through your life, but also throughout your athletic career that you had to be mentally tough. So when you think about the word mental toughness, what does it mean to you? Um, that's a good question. Uh, I'd say that mental toughness, like most things in life uh, that, that a lot of people ask about, a lot of times I'm asked about leadership, mental aspects of what I went through. A lot of times I like to answer people with the basic background that these things are abstractions. They are different for every single individual. And it's hard to quantify or put words exactly to what the concepts actually are, only how they played out um, in the abstract for me. So 
when somebody says, you know, what was mentally, how would you define mental toughness? I'd say, well, for me, it's basically pushing beyond the limits of what others have ascribed to you or what you even believed for yourself. That could be in any number of forms or in any number of challenges. Challenges are all relative to how we're feeling in life. No one person has the most difficult challenge if we, you know, relative to somebody else, if everybody feels that they are being uh, appropriately challenged. And what I mean by that is that somebody who has not been to a certain level can't know what that level is like. And so a lot of times people will say, oh, hey, well, I've had this challenge, but it's nowhere near as big as, let's say, going to the Olympics. And I'll say, well, that that doesn't really actually make much of a difference in the grand scheme of things because I don't know the challenges that you faced. I may have buckled under those pressures. Only you know the challenge you faced. And so mental toughness, if I were to, to put any words to it, it's the ability of our own selves to get beyond the limitations, which either we have ascribed to ourselves or others have placed on us. Mm, I love it. I love it. Now, can you can you go back to a specific time? Now, you were also a, a hockey player as well. So was there a time as a hockey player or in your Olympic career, was there a specific time that you could share where you had to be mentally tough? Can you like walk my listeners <laughs> through that moment? Absolutely. Uh, there's, it sounds very cliche, but the, the entire, entire journey of that I have tread at least since age 16, 17 has been, uh, a mentally tough one for which there were a number of challenges, whether in a, a number, a background just for people listening who 99.99% of you won't know who I am. I did grow up playing hockey um, from age three through university and then switched to skeleton, which is a headfirst sport, uh, headfirst cousin sport of bobsled. Um, I've never been considered in my life the best athlete at anything. I was far from it and I always knew people say they like to know their limitations. I knew my limitations. My limitations were I just wasn't. Uh, it was that kind of sad state. I've heard I've heard minor league ball players talk about it. I mean, I've I've spoken to quite a few. You you tend to run into a lot of different athletes in different sports when you play internationally. And one of it is the thing that it always came closest to was a minor league experience, which is I was always very good, but never great. And it's a bit of a curse because you don't, again, this particular minor league ball player who came to mind, uh, he had told me, you know, this is, it's the worst because you think you're going to keep, you keep wanting to try to get to the show, but you're not going to get to the show, but you weren't lucky enough to be bad enough to quit early. And so you spend your entire life chasing this near impossible dream. And so everything for me since age 16, 17 in sports has been kind of that where originally early on, I, I believe that I wasn't going to be playing at a professional or high level after high school. I thought that's just not what Jews did. And so at 18, 19 years old, when I decided to kind of make a change in my life, go from uh, somebody who was, I was tested for diabetes. I was very, very large. I was a very large individual. It just became about um, surpassing the never quite good to acceptably almost very good, uh, so to speak, if we're going to put it in, you know, in, in a range. And so everything from there has been Everything from that time period has been trying to surpass the limitations, which I placed on myself, but other people also placed 
uh, on me as we'll talk about my scouting report later, I'm sure for skeleton. Uh, the first, the first, or we can talk about it now the first, um, note of mental toughness, I guess, is, uh, is that, uh, when I did start the sport of skeleton, um, the critical components of skeleton that are not equipment based are balance. You have to balance in a very precise manner on your sled and sprinting. Sprinting is the critical physical component of skeleton. And so I had scoliosis and had a, a complete inability to run in a straight line very quickly. I was a hockey goalie. I, my feet went out to the side and I shuffled back and forth rather than running forward and back. And so, um, and so I was told quite simply, uh, the, I'll never forget the conversation. The conversation had the phrase, you are not what we would call athletic. You are not equipped for the sport. You might achieve a small level of success, but that'll be about it. Uh, I think the words that I have that are on my Olympic ring are, uh, you will never be competitive. And so that the mental toughness there was essentially pushing beyond that, getting that scouting report and changing my trajectory in sport. Because at the time, I was going to be doing speed skating. The skills that I had from hockey had very clear crossover. I was given some great scouting reports in speed skating. I thought I was going to get Israel to the 2022 games in speed skating. And um, and when I heard that scouting report in skeleton, I, I, I basically just decided to switch everything and decided to pursue skeleton at that point. Because nobody tells me that I can't do something. Only I tell myself. Absolutely. You know, and... It's it's interesting when I'm hearing this. You you've dealt with a lot of adversity, right? You have had a you've dealt with a lot of um, you know obviously weight issues, being diabetic. Um, uh, oh, I'm not actually I'm not diabetic. I was tested for diabetes. Oh, tired. Okay, I should I should I should point that out. I'm not diabetic. Got it. Okay, good <laughs> good. But but beyond that, you've you've dealt with a lot of uh, you've you had to deal with a lot of criticism and you've had to deal with adversity and. And I'm just I'm I'm curious because, you know, being a mental performance coach, I hear this all the time. You know, you could be the best athlete on the team or within your sport, but if you don't have a mental game, you're not that you, you know you're not the best, right? Or you're going to fail in that moment, and so, or can fail in that moment. So with you, you know, being a an average athlete, would you say that? The, the way that you got to being at a, an elite level uh, where you've gotten today, do you think it's because of your mental game? Was it your mindset that elevated you? The only reason that I can have the title, I, I cringe. Generally, people place Olympians on a pedestal, um, and I simply don't belong on any kind of pedestal. I Again, I was just like this average dude who tried quite hard, and so I – bulk at the at using the term um accomplishment or however it would be described described as getting to the games but in lieu of a better word the accomplishments of getting to uh, to, to an olympics is uh is incredibly mental uh it, it is incredibly mental you have to have a mental game there's for every for every me who makes the games or for every individual athlete who makes the games, I guess there is dozens of, for, of more qualified, more exceptionally athletic individuals. And it's not to say that those others don't qualify because they are not mentally tough. There are so many other factors that go into that, uh, including uh, nation quotas and everything else that, you know, they, there can't be, there can't be 300 American athletes in, in one sport, but, um, 
my mental training uh, probably went above and beyond. I would, I would venture a guess to say it's a dangerous thing to say, but I would venture a guess to say that it went beyond any individual skeleton athlete in the world. Mm. Um, for 10 to 12 hours a day, I watched um, YouTube videos to create neural pathways in my brain to make me a better driver because I knew I couldn't push. Pushing is the act of sprinting. Um, I had a plan for every single moment in the day from the time that I wake, woke up to the time that I went to bed. There would be I, I dedicated minimum 18 hours a day essentially to skeleton. Um, there wasn't a single moment that I was not mentally prepared in creating those those mental connections uh, to succeed. All of that came at an expense. Uh, it often does for those who are listening who have, pardon me, have really pushed forward through uh, times in your life. You'll have probably come to a point where there was severe burnout and that to me did occur in 2016. There was a massive, massive uh, instance of burnout and, it just generally happens when you spend the entirety of your waking day for more than four years towards a specific goal. But without that mental game, I mean, the only reason the only reason I got there was because of the mental game. And that's something that I try to pass on very, very much to the athletes that I mentor, um, the person who has succeeded me or who will succeed me um, as the his name is Jared. I, I have a teammate. His name is Joel. He's currently team captain. He's a very good athlete. But somebody came to the team this year who is more athletic. He's more athletically gifted uh, than the rest of us. His 100-meter times are very, very good. I think they were like something like 10.7 seconds. It's, he's just He's got a very, very good athletic background. And the biggest thing that we've worked on this year is mental, mental games, is setting out gold trees, having things to shoot for. With the appropriate mental approach, every decision becomes incredibly easy to make uh, or relatively easy to make. I mean, there's always emotion involved. But if you're mentally prepared, then when curveballs come your way, it it's so much easier to make the determination on what you need to do. Totally. For sure. You know, and, and as you're describing like, your mindset and what it took to get to this level, if you were to describe your mindset, either describe it or maybe uh, – label it in one word what would that be fanatical <laughs> that's the first uh it's a terrible it's a terrible adjective but i, think, I get it i get in it most cases yeah no it's it isn't it was fanaticism i was absolutely fanatical about getting israel to to the games it's um when we talk about the mental aspect of things and you say and you asked uh about the mental component of things. The only reason that I lifted, that I was able to get out of the um, the burnout in 2016, relatively short time, it, it, from the time that the burnout hit, the burnout, it, it was like a tidal wave had just blowed me over so completely in one moment. And then through a thought process of, you know, Israel needs to do this and I'm the only one who's going to be able to do this for for the country, and if I leave, I'm stealing their opportunity. And it was just this fanaticism that was, um, I mean, it, it was everything. Every single breath that I took had the goal of of getting Israel to the games. And in in if I was eating, if I was making pasta, like I'd have I'd have a video rolling in front of me. If I was eating, even if I wanted a small break, video would be rolling in front of me. When I was doing laundry at the coin op. 
at the coin, you know, at the coin machines, I, I'd lie down, I'd lay down, uh, down on a, uh, on a table pretending I was on the sled. I'd put my computer in front of me. I always traveled with VR goggles, um, always traveled with a number of phones that if a phone, um, you know, a number of old phones that if a phone lost battery, I'd be able to pull up video on another phone. I was completely fanatical about making this work. You know, when you, when you talk about that word being fanatical and, 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 and having that motivation, that inspiration of, you know, showing up and, and being that athlete for Israel, I guess my question would be like, and I, and I know I kind of already hear it, but when you became the first Orthodox Jewish male to compete in the Winter Olympics, and I can only, I, and I've had so many Olympians on my show, you know, and they talk about that feeling when they're, they're going through the, the, uh, the Olympic ceremonies. And they're all, they just feel like this rep- representation of themselves and also for their country. Like, what did it really feel like for you to be the first Orthodox Jew to, com- to compete? And what did it feel like when you were going through that, the whole ceremonies? It's, it's very hard to describe a mix of emotion which you're unprepared for. I think because I haven't had a reference point, I didn't have a reference point to it before and I haven't had a reference point since I can imagine, I can remember like wells of different feelings around that time. There was relief. There was excitement. There was pride. Um, but I think on top of most of it, there was a job to do. It was, I think, unlike, unlike most Olympic athletes, I, my qualification most most Olympic qualifications come are decided far before the games. Uh, base, the Israeli baseball team, for example, qualified for the Olympics last year um, for 2020. The bobsled and skeleton, though, are pretty unique in that they're determined only on one specific day in a final ranking table that takes place two to three weeks before the games. It was the games open on February 9th of 2018, and all of the spots were determined essentially on January 16th. And so the fight for qualification was so down to the wire. I only made it by the, on, on the last two days, there were two races. I needed to pull out two medals in those races. And, uh, and it was quite the, the tall order and, and they had been pulled out. So in the, couple weeks in which I had of knowledge that I was of certainty that I was going to the games, um, those were filled with training, hard, intense training that was also had an element of fear of, well, if I blow a hamstring during this training, everything is gone, but I can't not train because if I don't train, I'll show up like a tub. And so, and so getting there was, there was relief, uh, going through there, but most of it was that there was a job still to be done, especially because I knew that I was not the gifted you know, the most gifted athlete there, far from it. And so I was thinking, I was thinking mostly about my competition. Mm. I was thinking I, I'm here. I finally have gotten here, but if I don't put in a, if I don't put in a performance that Israel appreciates, they're never going to send another skeleton athlete. You know, they have, the country has the ability to decide who they send and who they don't, even if they get the invite skeleton is very, very hard to make the games. And I would venture, I guess to say that it's probably one of the hardest qualification paths, if not the hardest, uh, at least in the winter Olympics. Uh, only 25 spots exist for men now. There were 30 in my uh, in my year. And um, 
those 30 are chosen of one of only, you have to be one of, I guess, pretty much the top 15 countries. So the qualification path isn't, is very, very difficult. Uh, and so I knew that I had to work my butt off. Uh, if Israel ever wanted to send another athlete to the games in skeleton or bobsled, because they're under the same federation, uh, then, you know, I had to put in a really good performance and the nerves were there. Well, and I want to talk about in, in a second here, we're going to circle back on, on the different th- types of fears that you deal with um, when you're at that level and, and kind of like segue into some of the fear that we're, that we're dealing with right now um, as a nation or as a world, actually. Um, but before we get into that, you know, when, when you think about preparing for the Olympics mentally, you know, the, the biggest athletic stage there is. What, what do you think, when you think about all the mental preparation, all the mental skills that you implemented, what do you think is the most important mental skill to get you prepared for that, for that level? Hard for me to say, honestly. I think your mental game is kind of a complete profile, in my, in my opinion. I, I don't ascribe – it's not like sports skills, in, in my view. I mean, everybody has their own views of things, but – in sports, we all have various skills. So ball handling is a skill in basketball. Shooting is a skill in basketball. Rebounding is a skill in basketball. So like in skeleton, um, sprinting is a skill as well as driving. And I had to bring up my driving ability to compensate for lack of a, of a sprint. Right. But when it comes to a mental game, everything in the mind, and I've been dealing with mind-related issues for years. Since I was 10, I, I suffered from depression and that was due to bullying, which I faced. Um, and so everything is part of a complete package when it comes to the brain. Everything is linked. Every, you know, if you withdraw inside yourself, all of your insecurities, not just one particular one, you know, comes out. And so I wouldn't peg a particular skill. I would say that overall, you need to just have a strong mental game. You need to be aware. Um, you need to have taken time to assess things and to have some familiarity with yourself and understanding how you're going to push beyond. But in the moment we can all, we all have the ability. I is a long answer, but I'd, I'd really say that the reason I don't put a particular skill on it is because in any given moment, we all have the chance and ability to move forward and succeed. Whereas if we talk about specific skills, if somebody lacks a skill, then it's kind of implying that they can't accomplish something or that, you know, that, that it, becomes so incredibly difficult but when it comes to the mental aspect simply overcoming inertia and moving beyond is a very tough action to take it's a very tough thing to do but we all have that ability totally i think it's i I call it the shift i think it's the hardest thing for an athlete whether if it if it's before you're actually going to compete during your competition or after where you where you have to shift back into your most confident self and, and there is, and I like how you actually talk about it, how it's kind of a, a complete um, profile, because there's a lot of things that come into play. Now, you know, but when you do kind of break down, like you're to break down different skill sets within other sports, you know, when you think about the, the mental game, there are skills like visualization, breathing, mindfulness, uh, self-talk, mantras, um, which kind of fall into self-talk, but there's all these different skills. And and I, and I brought it up because there was a, an athlete that I, I got I worked with to get her prepared. Um, she was actually um, in bobsled as well um, for, for for the U.S. And 
when I was working with her for about six months or so, there was a few skills that we, we focused on. But And I've been very, obviously, I've been around for a while, and I've watched a lot of Olympics, and I know how big visualization is. And especially, you know, within your sport, visualizing the track, visualizing the run, everything, the start, everything. It's, I only bring it up because it was a beautiful thing for me as a mental performance coach to watch on TV all of these, like, bobsledders and, and skeleton athletes that were like getting prepared, like you can just see them closing their eyes and going, walking themselves through their script or going through their visualization. And to me, that's just, it's like music to my ears, actually music to my eyes. But, um, and I can only imagine that you focused on visualization because you touched on that a little bit. But do you feel like far as a skill, do you think, was that something that helps you a lot to, to perform at that level and get ready for the Olympics? Visualization is was probably the the tool mm. like I, I would i would describe my visualization more as something that i'd have you know these tools to pull out of the of the um of the toolbox so to speak and, and to apply them to various scenarios and the visualization tool was critical and highly indispensable and one which i turn to most often it, for those of of for those listening who don't know about skeleton and bobsled, it's running about a mile long track. We go about 90 miles an hour. Skeleton, the difference between skeleton and bobsled is bobsled is steered by um, utilizing uh, a couple of pulleys with your hands while you see and are driving forward in what, what would resemble kind of a bus. Uh, cool Runnings is a movie based around that sport. Skeleton is the more badass cousin of um, <laughs> of bobsled. It's it's head first on your stomach. And, um, and so what both sports share is not just the ice and not just the, uh, the track, which they're run on, they share much of the same tools that are necessary to succeed. And one of those is understanding exactly where you are in the track at all times so that you have an understanding of what's coming up and not just what's coming up, but if things aren't going right or if things are going right, what to do next to execute. And so when when a sport goes faster than the human response time, which is what skeleton and bobsled do because the human response time is a quarter of a second about, and any mistake that you make will have repercussions immediately, um, you need to have a complete visualization of everything that's going on around you. And that will for me, that was just laying down these markers, these neural pathways, these highways of information in the brain to, um, I, the reason I watched 10 to 12 hours of video a day is because I knew that my brain was connecting dots of something didn't go right in this video and this athlete corrected this way, or you can see this athlete do this, or it had a certain negative impact. And for me, that eventually turned into a scenario in which I was able to, um, Every athlete sees himself differently, but for me, I slid blind. Um, I couldn't, uh, because of either the scoliosis or just weak neck muscles, I couldn't keep my head up during the runs, during the high G-force corners. And so I was probably one of the only athletes at all to slide completely blind through a track for the most part, um, which meant that my head was almost always on the ice. I couldn't see where I was going. So I had to feel for these high G-force pressures. Um, the subtleties 
in changes of the pressures can tell you whether you're going up in a corner or down. And so building these neural pathways allowed me to view myself, knowing that I was going into a corner, I could feel then the G-forces and a tape loop would play in my brain, so to speak, imagining it was kind of like a drone was overhead watching me go throughout the track. Wow. And I would overlay myself inside of those World Cup videos, which I had watched so endlessly. And that would allow me to make the corrections which I needed um, while I was in the track. It, it just gave me that extra edge because every time I was in a track, even if I had gotten, even if I had gotten the stuffing knocked out of me a corner before and I just smashed a wall, I had had hundreds of hours of video stored in my brain, so to speak, on continuous loop that knew, well, if this happens to you, the next thing is going to happen. And so you could respond in that certain way. And so um, visualization is huge. It's really, really big. Man, I love that, that you shared that. You know, and it's interesting. I, I had an um, American football coach that was on my, my show just a couple weeks ago. His name's Hugh Jackson. And we were talking about uh, physical reps and also mental reps and visualization. And he was saying that you know, repetition is the mother of all learning. And he goes, it doesn't matter if it's mental or physical, but you know, getting your reps in and you watching film, like I get it. I mean, I have my athletes do that all the time, not only to, uh, to see themselves do things right, but also see themselves recorrecting, whether if it's someone else doing it or themselves and in creating those neural pathways is huge. Um, and it seems like, you know, the way that you, like when you were describing the way you had to feel the track and respond, how you've trained your mind to feel and respond in the moment in a nanosecond, for the most part, uh, I can only imagine that you're, by doing that, you've had to increase your emotional intelligence to feel how to move when you're going that fast. You do have to, there's absolutely a, um, a disconnect between how your brain takes in the stimuli mm-hmm. at first and what happens when you train your brain. And so, um, I'm sure you have not much reference to uh, about this. And so you've kind of uh, bumped into it, which is why I'm very impressed. Uh, But the run volume is how we get in those reps. Uh, And so what I mean by run volume is that skeleton is the only sport in my, uh, from my understanding, and I'm, I'm 99.9% sure on this, the only sport in either Olympic program um, either summer or winter for which legitimately most of the sport is unable to be trained on for more than half a year. So even the sports of bobsled and luge can train during the summer months with wheels on their sleds. It's not as effective, but they still can train. They can get that, those mental reps in at least while they're going through the track in their own sled. Uh, but skeleton, the mechanism of a skeleton sled is not is not conducive to function with wheels. It has to be like the way the sled is steered is by torquing the sled under G-force pressure. And so wheels will not accomplish that. And uh, and because of the shortened time frame for which you can prepare for skeleton, uh, only five plus, really only five months of your 12-month year, the run volume that you get, the amount of times you actually sit or lie on the sled and go through the track during the season is of critical importance to you. And so for me, I had a truncated season early on. I had truncated seasons early on because I was 
Uh, I was at the time kind of sneaking away from Oracle, which I had a job at in California. I'd sneak away every weekend and fly up to Calgary. I'd, I'd when I say sneaking away, because I really left on Thursday, so I'd be working remotely Thursday, Friday, and I'd I'd train Thursday, Friday, Saturday night if I could get on the ice, and Sunday, and I would train three to four times, really three times the maximum amount of runs that most people were allowed to take in Canada. Uh, I had no such uh, restrictions. Um, the restriction is there out of consideration for brain health. Athletes uh, from Canada are only supposed to take a maximum of three. I took generally seven to nine. And uh, and it's because I knew that those repetitions were so critical and so important and functioning on what was already a very shortened season for myself. I resolved to have the most run volume that I could possibly get. Later on, when I quit my job and was traveling fully, I would take routinely seven, eight, nine runs a day, and I'd be traveling through Europe at the end of the season. It was my goal to get twice as much run volume, if not three times as much run volume as a normal skeleton athlete who was trying to do what I was trying to do, because I was terrible. I was a bad skeleton athlete. Um, And so the more... I threw myself down the track. The more I could train myself, I didn't have a, I couldn't afford a, a coach to travel with me. Coaches cost $40,000 a year. I, I was, you know, living pretty much, um, uh, paycheck to paycheck. Yeah. Though at one point, I didn't, you know, not one point for a couple of years didn't have a paycheck. So sleeping in a car and when I got to Germany and it was, um, you know, I, many times when I opted to sleep in cars, it was because I could either, take the 60 euros that I was going to spend uh, sleeping, or I can apply that to two runs the next day on a track. And I would always take the training volume. It was, it was, it was critical. Wow. Wow. And, and here's a <clears throat> couple of questions in one here, but cause you're, you're, you're describing what it takes to, to do it. And I love it. <clears throat> so when you think about like, the sensation, like, what does it feel like when you're going down the track? What's going through your <laughs> mind? Or is there anything? Is it one of those sports where you have to, you know, there's some things you just turn off, right? And you just react. It's actually very funny that you asked that. I, um, the reason I say it's funny that you asked that is that um, I have open, you know how when your computer shuts off, sometimes when your computer shuts off, it auto saves these documents. Uh and and so like it shut off unexpectedly the other day because it ran out of battery. I saved this document and it's been on the side of my screen ever since. I tried to put into words the other day what it felt like to go down a skeleton track <laughs> because a lot of people have asked what it's like. And so um, I didn't complete uh, the page because I because really I got lost in what words were appropriate after it says 366. But um I'd say if I were to try to to really distill it down into something that could be understood, um, initially it starts with nervousness, and nervousness is something which is good. It's your warrior response. If we talk about fear later, that's um, oh, yeah. fear is fear is the best thing that you could experience to know that you that you can succeed. It is the best thing. So initially you have a little bit of fear, and then um, we stand at the line, we stand at the starting line, waiting for the previous athlete to get through the track. And when he gets through the track, we will have a small amount of time before the light turns green and we're, and we then have 30 seconds to go. If we don't cross a line that's about uh, 50 meters in front of us, 
after um actually this was about like 20 meters in front of us after the 30 seconds have started or after the 30 seconds have completed again uh we are disqualified from our run and so uh during that time for which you're preparing to blast off we'll call it from the time that that light turns green for me everything became extremely silent and i've heard different athletes describe different experiences but for me everything became very muffled from the outside world. And so people would be screaming and cheering and yelling and waving cowbells. And you might hear the really loud bangs of the cowbells go through. And those actually sometimes helped push a little faster. But the outside world, the announcers, everything kind of fell away as I was continuing to imagine myself the final mine runs that you're putting through. You might throw up to 40 steers or more in a track. And you have all these steers, those are for the perfect lines, but nothing is ever perfect. And so the moment you get knocked off, you have contingency plans and contingency plans and contingency plans of other contingency plans. And so it, doing that mental uh, run up until the point where I was actually ready to blast off was something that I, that I pretty much did uh, because I... I wanted to so sharply etch into my brain that this is how the track was and this is what I might experience. Eventually, just before I push off, though, I did a centering technique, which I'm sure you've talked about on your show before. But I said a mantra, uh, which brought me back to it was a single thing that that was um, that I could use for replication, basically to just say that this situation is like every other race situation that I've been in. It doesn't matter that the track is different. It doesn't matter that the stakes are different. It's all the same. And so I'd say this mantra of mine for myself, for my people, for my country, uh, to remind me of, I said in Hebrew, to remind me of what my motivations were and why I was doing what I was doing. It brought me confidence. Uh, and so then once you're going down in the track, once you've, once you've blasted off, um, you're running essentially a 50-meter all-out sprint. And so your adrenaline spikes, your heart rate goes through the roof. Uh, you then jump on the sled and you immediately have to calm yourself down. You really have to calm yourself down because stiffness on the sled leads to some terrible, terrible results. Yeah. And you have to become, you have to become like jello. And so um, that very short time period for which you've gone, for which you've done the most physical exertion you possibly could will your body to do to being absolutely serene is um it has to take place immediately and then while you're going through the track you have to manage the absolute um god chaos for which is you know bombarding the stimuli that's bombarding your brain and the 5g forces and so when i was going through the track most times i would describe it as an incredibly difficult and painful version of skydiving Uh, (laughs) skydiving is very fun well, it's very fun. If anybody who's ever skydived will know what the feeling of free fall is. And anybody who's been on a roller coaster would, would know, you know, kind of that, that your stomach drops, your stomach kind of goes into your chest feeling where everything is, um, that free fall kind of feeling is, is enjoyable to us for the most part. Uh, but in skeleton, generally, uh, you feel quite a bit of pain when, when, when hitting walls and, I hit more walls than anybody else, certainly more than any other Olympian, I'm sure. And, um, and so it's a mixture. It's a mixture of fear, pain, uh, confidence. Um, but 
overall, the one thing that, that would come to mind is blankness as well. Uh, those 60 seconds of chaos you'd think would last for forever. Uh, and they do seem like a, a bit of a long time, but if I'm honest about it, the, the calmness of just going through a track, um, everything becomes about the zone. You are in a, a total zone and you're unable to think about anything else. And I'm sure any other athlete has spoken about the zone on your show, but when you have a task to do and it's for your sport, every single other external stimuli just gets just destroyed, especially when, <laughs> especially when, yeah, it's totally it's, skeleton is like skeleton is a, is a sport for which you can suffer some severe and catastrophic injuries. And so back when I was playing hockey as a goalie, there was a ton of external stimuli I'd pay attention to, especially when the puck was on the other end of the ice. I'd kind of tune out a little bit, hang out on my net. Uh, you know, once, once, once a puck was picked up by the opposing team, I start to get more prepared. And then when they came down to breakaway, I was totally in a zone, but skeleton, if you take your mind off, if you take your mind off of what you're doing, you're going to end up in the hospital. And so it, everything gets tuned out. You become completely wrapped up in the moment itself. Yeah. I love it. You know, you, you brought up a couple of things for me, at least when you were talking, um, you know, the athlete that I was working with, uh, she was, um, part of the, the two woman bobsled and she was the brakeman. And so, you know, her, her main job was to start, right. G getting, getting the sled going. And she said she would hear all that noise that you were talking about, the cowbells and all that. But she said that when you're in the sled, it gets so loud that you you kind of don't hear it anymore. But she says, <laughs> but she's like, the thing with her, she's like, I knew when I wasn't focused on the right thing, if I wasn't hearing my breath. She's like, when I was just me and my breath, she's all, because I'm going for the ride at this point, I'm putting all my trust in, in the in the person that's steering the sled. But she's like, if I couldn't hear my breath and be just connected with my breath, then I wasn't focusing on the things I need to be focusing on. I was like, ah, oh, that's interesting. And so we focus on a lot of that stuff. But you talked about mantra, and I know that mantras are, um, they can be very personal. Um, and I know you shared it. Are you cool with sharing what your mantra was? Yeah, the I, I mentioned it before. The mantra was in Hebrew. It was for myself, for my people, for my country. Oh, got it, got it. Um, yeah, it was I just... Every every Olympian has uh, has to be involved in their. Um, I, I think the mantra applies to whenever I talk to kids, especially. I tell them that the mantra applies to everybody. It's not just a sport specific thing. But um, if you're going to accomplish anything, it has to. You have to be self invested in it. It can't be this truly um, altruistic kind of thing. Because when the burnout comes, you're just going to give up. You have to be somewhat personally involved, and so. I was doing my journey so that I can get myself to somewhere. That was, you know, the first thing I had to remember that I wanted it. Uh, and then my people who I represented was um, my community where I came from, uh, all people who, if I acted in a way or performed poorly, it would reflect poorly on them. And finally, I was, I was gifted the opportunity and only existed as an athlete because my country allowed me to do so. And so um, I believe it applies to everybody. Uh, that you know that specific mantra but for me in that in that moment it was really critical because I was always teetering on the edge of I lived in isolation on the road for four years uh, doing a sport for which I suffered a 
very dearly fiscally, uh, financially and, um, and physically, uh, as well as then, you know, the consequences of which were further emotional. Uh, but the, because of that, I had to continually remind myself at the critical moment that there were many reasons of which I was on that journey, all of them pure and good and, uh, supposedly unselfish. Definitely. I, I love that. I love it, man. I love it that you have so much connection and meaning to your mantra as well. Um, one, one more thing before we, we get into closing out the show here, you know, we, we've talked a lot about fear and, and I can only imagine like when I, when I, when I see your sport, it's like first thing that comes up for me at least, cause I played, played 13 years, 12, 13 years of football, which is a very violent sport. Um, but when I think of your sport, I mean, I just, the, the word comes up for me is crazy. Like that is crazy. <laughs> right. So we talk about the fear and, and I love it that you brought it up earlier in the show that you need, you need a little bit of fear. You need a little bit of fear to motivate you, keep you honest, keep you motivated. But there's all different types of different kinds of fear. And there's different things that can show up for you. Obviously, for me, when I look at your sport, I would think like, well, I'd be fearful of crashing. That would be the first thing. But when you start thinking about like, I hope I don't crash, I hope I don't crash, more often than not, you end up crashing. So, you know, so what's, what's, what, what are some of the fears that come up for you? And then how do you combat some of those, those negative fears? Yeah, the, uh, <laughs> the, the pain fear is usually, uh, it's not an infrequent fear. I would say that it, it, uh, it became less and less through repetition. Um, a, f- a very good friend of mine, uh, who's a far better skeleton athlete than myself, John Farrow of Australia, he was a mentor and is now a brother to me. Uh, and he would, he used to say the same thing all the time, confidence through repetition, confidence through repetition. And, um, and so that a lot of the pain aspect of, of fear, uh, you know, or sorry, fearing pain went away after a lot of repetition, but the fear of failure is always present, and I think is I think it's similar for everybody in life. This fear of failure, it's you know we don't want to. It it wasn't just, you know I could I I was always comfortable with failing on my own, um, because I was on my own. So if I failed, it wasn't really like the biggest deal for me personally, but failing for my country or failing and letting others down or those who had supported me, especially, I mean, it, it was so financially difficult to get through skeleton because it was so expensive, but for those who did help me cover costs, um, I, it, it was a daily fear of letting them down. You know, I would, I, I had continually felt like, well, if I don't make this, they'll have thrown their money into a toilet, you know, flush it down the toilet. What's the point? Uh, and so, uh, there was always a fear of failure, but fear is an incredible, incredible. I only found this out at the Olympics. It was a, a, a realization that that came just in time. Um, fear is only present, and uh, here's where I put in a, a shameless plug to to a TEDx talk I gave on fear as a barometer of potential. But um, fear is only present when we when there's uncertainty. And there's only uncertainty where there's possibility. 
So you can't possibly fear, for the most part, um, something that is impossible, because that's when you experience resignation. Uh, you only experience fear. It's very similar to excitement. It's the same physiological responses, essentially, as, exci as, as excitement is fear. Our pupils dilate. Our heart rate accelerates. All the things that we get when we're excited or super excited, we associate with fear as well. And so it's a matter of, of perspective. And when I say it's a matter of perspective, the perspective in your mind somewhere is that you can possibly accomplish this. We only experience fear when we know that we can, that we can overcome and so that's uh, I, I tell I tell the basketball athletes you're only fearing missing a shot because somebody got you the ball because you're in the game and because you can play, you know we only fear not getting a uh, not getting a job because we applied for it we were qualified enough to to apply for it in the first place, and so fear is a very necessary and healthy component of things because if you do fear it means that you do know that that you have the potential to actually follow through. I love it. I love it, man. And we could we could definitely talk about fear and, and especially within your sport. Um, we could dedicate a whole session or a whole episode to it. <laughs> so, but, yeah. But before the sake of time, though, I, I do want to I do want to cover this because I know this is important, um, and it's also important to you. But I, I know, and I think this is great that athletes that achieve success or get to this elite level, um, they have a, they create a platform and they use their platform for worthy causes, and which is great. You've chosen to promote anti-bullying and mental health issues. Can you share a little bit about kind of your your connection to these to these issues? Yeah, so I touched on it very briefly earlier. When I was young, I was a very self-confident, very um, energetic young kid. Up through age ten, I was uh, you know natural a natural athlete and. When I was 10 years old, I switched schools to a place where I stuck out like a sore thumb. I was more religious than the rest of the kids, and uh, it was still a Jewish school, but I was far more religious. And so uh, I was uh, emotionally picked on and bullied. You know, I wasn't, uh, you know, I was called names and uh, never picked for any of the teams, uh, not invited to birthday parties, and, you know, where kids would talk about it the next day uh, right in front of me and stuff. And, uh, it, it had some very, very drastic consequences, one of which is uh, in a recent interview, I described it as uh, bullying killed me. It, it it killed the kid who was who existed until age 10 and replaced him with somebody completely different. And that's who I uh, am today. And I'm not it's not something that I'm disappointed in who I am today. Not at all. I'm very proud of who I am today. But it, we're just two completely different people like who I was before just ceased to exist. And. Uh, for the longest time, uh, it still has repercussions still today, but it just had these terrible, terrible consequences on confidence and what I thought was possible and what I wanted to achieve in life. And um, the positive benefit of the bullying, though, the only thing that was positive, and not many people, unfortunately, uh, are are blessed enough to have this kind of reaction. Most oftentimes, it's a it's a it's a different reaction. But my reaction was. I, I will beat the rest of these kids, you know, in 20 years, they'll be gone from my life. And, uh, but I'll still be here and I'll have something to be incredibly uh, proud of. And they'll, they'll have to just wonder, you know, whatever happened to that kid I picked on, Oh, he, he, he did something worthwhile. And so, um, and so that was, you know, being better and continual improvement was the way to do it. And that was, um, 
the only positive potential aspect that came out of bullying. But I am incredibly passionate about anti-bullying uh, because it, I could have just far easier have gone into the rut of just losing losing it all. And so um, anti-bullying is one. And depression uh, and mental health is, is, is the second. I talk to kids a lot about that because I have had um, significant struggles in uh, being a happy individual and that, um, you know, it takes its toll. So uh, those are the two, two causes which I'm very, very passionate about. And I'm glad you brought it up. It's kind of funny. And again, this is this is about you. It's not about me. But, you know, it's really interesting, you know, when I reflect on my life. And this came up for me about a year ago or so. Um, I was bullied and I completely suppressed it and forgot about it for a long, like long, long time. And I think because after the the experience of being bullied, I I started to live a really, really popular life. And so I just, I kind of forgot about it and suppressed it. And little, you know, lo and behold, here I am, a mental performance coach teaching mental skills training in a, you know, where the bullying happened, happened in a school setting. And here I am in a school setting, and I, I started to go through these feelings going, whoa, like, why is this coming up? Why, why am I feeling these things? And it all came back to, to self-acceptance. And, and I realized, like, I'm like, wow, I, I, like, if someone asked me if I was bullied, I'd probably tell them no. Like, I've never been bullied because I was a cool guy. I was popular, you know, I was a quarterback, whatever. But then when I think of when I really, when I was doing some like discovery and really dropping in and doing the work, I was like, wow, this is where this is all coming from. And, it, and it's so ironic that it happened in a school setting. And uh, so the stuff's real, you know, and, you know, and not even trying to connect with everything you're saying, but I am connecting with everything you're saying. I had to go through depression with, with my career ending injury for almost two decades you know, I didn't get to choose to leave my sport. My my body told me that I had to leave because I had a injured hip and I had two hip replacements uh, on my hip before I was 40. So I had to deal with a lot of the mental health issues as well. So I'm only bringing that up to support that this stuff is real and, and it's super important to, to bring these things to light. And, and I commend you and I support you and encourage you to keep on, you know, fighting a good fight on these areas. Sure. Awesome. Well, one more question. I know this is a little bit longer, but man, you were, uh, man, you've been great and have been sharing great content here. But when you reflect on your whole career as an athlete, what do you think you've learned the most about yourself? Hmm. Boy, uh, that's a hard question. Uh, I, I really don't have, um, I'd say I've learned a lot about the world. Probably, probably the biggest, uh, probably I, there's no biggest lesson I've learned in general. Uh, there I've learned a lot of stuff I didn't know and I'm still learning so many new things. And so, but one of the things that I would say, it just feels like at this moment, actually it comes up a lot in dating. Cause, uh, you know, it, as a 29 year old, uh, single Jew dating is at the forefront of what I'm supposed to be doing right now. But, um, uh, is that time, not everything needs to be done immediately. Um, and so I think as an athlete, um, patience is something that athletes both kind of excel at playing the long game, so to speak, but also impatience is something that we are, um, oftentimes cursed with because we're very hands-on people. 
Um, you know, I, if something goes wrong, I want to immediately fix it. You know, there's got to be a fix that I can implement or have the ability to 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 contribute positively to something to, or to a scenario. I think that a lot of the the lessons of having to traverse a four year at minimum journey is that is that it, it, you really do eventually learn that you have to go through a process and you have to wait and be patient and allow things to play out appropriately. Uh, and it's something that's really hard in dating too, right? Is uh, I'm sure anybody who's listening who's doing online dating, you meet somebody uh, interesting that you want to chat to, and boy, you just want to see them the next day, or you just want to, you know, talk to them all the time. But um, <laughs> things have a process to play out, and I think a lot of us are dealing with that now with coronavirus. Is right. that uh, you know we're not going to be seeing people for months, maybe. So uh, it's just. Things do eventually p- come to pass, though, and I a lot of times when I'm talking to people about losing weight, it's, that's something that I had struggled with a lot as when I was a teen and and even um, you know through age nineteen twenty. Um, is that how many times have we have we hit June, you know, time and thought, boy, back in January I, I swore that I was going to get in shape, and if only for the last six months I had done some really small fix every day. I would be exactly where I wanted to right now um, is that time passes and time does march and we eventually get to down the road. So uh, it's probably one of the more important ones I've been thinking about lately, especially with the uh, especially with the dating thing. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Well, AJ, man, thank you for sharing your thoughts uh, on the mental game, your mental game, um, your whole journey as an Olympian and and your platform on anti-bullying and mental health issues. Man, it's it's been an honor to have you on my show, and uh, and I really, really appreciate your energy uh, today on the show today. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you for having me. You bet.